Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30. And, yes, it is time for the 3CR Gardening Show. We're back for 2018 and really looking forward to a a wonderful year of sharing gardening uh, tips, tricks, stories, uh, commiserations, whatever (laughs) comes up on the program. But uh, we're very happy to be back. First up, I have to say a very good morning to Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants. Morning, Stephen. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, everybody out there. I hope that they've remembered to um, tune in this morning, seeing as we've been off air for a little while. (laughs) It Um, has been a while. Yes, it does seem like an age, actually, because it's, uh, well, we finished up at Christmas and uh, it's now February. That's right. We had quite a long break from 3CR (laughs) this year, but anyhow, we're back. Absolutely. And we also have to say a very, very good morning to Meryl Johnson from Country Farm Perennials. Good morning, Meryl. Good morning, Pam and Stephen and everyone listening. Well, we hope you've all got your spades sharpened up. (laughs) (laughs) And lots of plans. Oh, yes. That's a good thing about having a break, a holiday. For me, anyway, it gives you time to stop and think. And then you start thinking up things you can do to the terror of your husband, of course. (laughs) Don't don't stop. Don't think. (laughs) But, of course, it does give you a chance to actually sit in your own garden, wander around your own garden, have a look at what's working, what isn't working. Exactly. um, Work out what really couldn't take the heat or otherwise. Yes, and uh, and all those little surprises. The plants that did do well that you didn't expect to do well. Exactly. And and, and go out and get a few more of those or multiply them up. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But it's lovely to use a garden with friends and family and kids over the summer break. Oh, yes, of course. We had a wonderful time last Saturday with our little identical twin grandsons. It was very hot. So we just had the little paddle pool in the deep shade of a tree, no clothes on. Well, I did. <laughs> I was going to say, that's glad you added that. Yes. <laughs> just a pair of sandals and a garden sprinkler. And yeah. they had the best fun oh, I bet. charging through the garden sprinkler. <laughs> that is fantastic, yeah. <laughs> it brings back all sorts of childhood memories. Yes. <laughs> Simple pleasures yeah. in the garden. Absolutely. Yeah, but they're, they're memories that children will never forget. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, they, they were screaming with delight. <laughs> and it was a garden sprinkler, for goodness sake, but it, it worked for hours. <laughs> yep, yep. No, that's great. Stephen, what have you been up to, apart uh, from being on ABC Radio uh, yes, every right, Saturday? Right through the, the Christmas break, I still ended up on radio. But anyhow, look, I quite enjoyed doing it in some ways. And, uh, um, and look, as... I felt it was my public duty. I mean, what were gardeners going to do if there wasn't anything on the radio <laughs> yes. to talk about gardening? <laughs> so, yes, I saw it as my duty. Um, I don't know. I've just been keeping busy with the garden, uh, as we all do, uh, trying to keep on top of things. Um, you know, we've got a few events coming up later in the year. We've got opera in the garden again in oh, March good. this year. And uh, so, uh, actually, it's up on the um, Gertrude Opera website or um, Uh, Opera Studio. So if anybody's interested in that, I hadn't even thought about bringing the paperwork in, so I haven't got it in front of me. But if anybody's interested in doing our Opera in the Garden um, event, uh, they could probably go in and book now. Um, But it's in March anyway. It'll be a a Sunday in March. And it's always great fun. So I'm trying to keep the garden looking vaguely all right and keep a bit of green in the grass where we'll be setting up for the opera and all that sort of thing. So the rain we've had over the last couple of weeks is helping with that a bit. And uh, so I've just got to keep on top of things until... 
till we have these events coming up. So, yeah, it's yeah. cutting back that's a big job at the moment, oh, isn't God, it? Yes. Because we've had that little bit of timely rain, the growth has continued and in excess for some mm. plants. It's that the sounds cutting like back. a pop group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so it is keep you on top of things. Yes. I ended up with a huge pile of shreddings to deal with the other day because we, I had a believe it or not, I've got a rose bush in the garden. Actually, I've got several rose bushes in the garden, so you know I make poke fun at roses all the time. But I do have some. But uh, my well, what I always thought of or thought was Bloomfield's abundance, which I'm told is not Bloomfield's abundance, but is actually Cecile Brunner spray or spray Cecile Brunner. One way or the other, I don't know. Anyhow, the little pink one uh, that grows into a vast big bush had got so big you had to drive around it on the driveway. Oh, dear. <laughs> and uh, I thought enough is enough. A summer pruning is about to happen. And by the time I'd finished, I ended up with something that looked like coat hangers. Um, <laughs> and I ended up with the biggest pile. It's amazing how when you've got a, a, a shrub standing there, you can look at it and say, all right, well, it's just a shrub. And then when you cut it back, really heavily and you end up with a pile of shrub. Um, but it's bigger how, than the original shrub. Yeah, I don't know how that works. <laughs> There's but a law I, of nature. I had this huge pile of it. And, of course, that rose is almost thornless, but it always has enough thorns in just a strategic spot when you go in to grab uh, that they get you. Uh, if it's a really prickly one, you're aware. But, you know, and so I ended up looking like I'd been fighting with tigers uh, and this bush was taken back by about... Five-eighths, maybe more, because <laughs> uh, by the time I'd got most of it out and then there was these big long caney things and I just kept going and going and going. So it's now starting to shoot again. It'll be fine in a few oh, weeks' time. Oh, it'll be wonderful, yeah. But um, it had just re- got so big. You realise it'll come back bigger and better oh, yeah. than oh, yes. ever. <laughs> I'm, I'm more than aware of that. But Continuing anyhow, process. Yes, yeah, so anyhow, so it, it had been years since it had had a proper prune. I mean, it had just been left and, yep. uh, and it flowered its head off and it was fine, but it had just got so enormous. Yep. And I thought, no, it's got it's to be, well, for the sake of the vehicles coming up and down our driveway, we've actually got friends who won't come up our driveway anymore because of There's the There's tigers in there. No, it's the juco on the car. <laughs> so precious, some people, about their cars. Um, and uh, so I thought, yeah, and, and people were starting to drive into the garden bed on the other side to get around the rose bush, and I thought, oh, that's not good enough. So, uh, yeah, so I got stuck in, and, yeah, and I ended up with the biggest pile. It took me nearly all day to shred. It wasn't just the rose, that, you know, once you start, you start. Yeah, you know, yes, yeah. Yes. So there was, I sort of moved from one thing to the next and by the time I looked around I'd I'd cleaned out all my bamboos they had some dead culms in them and they needed the little fluffy bits taken off to show off the nice stems and all that sort of thing and so by the time I'd finished all the bamboos and then I moved on to something else I don't remember all the things I did but I pruned a mass of stuff and uh, yes I ended up with the biggest pile of mulch by the time I'd finished (laughs) And, and my whole body good. was shaking from the shredder. Oh, yes, <laughs> yes, that's not so good. No, <laughs> I, I do have a love-hate relationship with shredders. I have to say they I mean, are if, noisy beasts. Oh, you know, they are, and and you know, and there's so much rattling going on, and 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 you end up with things flicking back at you and all sorts of stuff when you're pushing things down. So you end up with bruises and scratches and God knows what else all over you. But you do end up with quite a nice pile of mulch which, of course, is quite small by the time you finish it. <laughs> so it suddenly disappears and you think, where did all that go? Yes. So, yeah, so that's what I've been up to, trying because all those things, if I get them done early enough, they won't be noticeable by the time we have our major events in the garden. So you've, yes. got, to, you've got to think these things through early yeah, enough. Exactly. You can't yes. do it a week before. Yeah. Um, it's like the sedums. It's, it's giving them what they, they call in Britain the Chelsea chop mm. because if you leave them just go to their first flowering 
full stretch, they're all just going to flop over and yeah, be very unruly. That, yeah. So you sort of let them get up about 30 centimetres and off at the socks again. You think, oh, will they reflower? They inevitably do, but it's much better because they're more compact yeah. and strong mm. yeah. and, and you've got more flowers too. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's all those little uh, the chop is, things. Yeah, mm. but getting the timing right is, is the thing. Yep. Oh, well, uh, the joys of gardening. (laughs) (laughs) It's all good fun. Uh, Absolutely. I'm going to hop straight into some community announcements because Mm -hmm. things are starting up for the year, which is is great. Uh, Now, this first one, um, it might be a rather late notice because uh, we haven't been on air, of course, over over January. But um, if you've ever been interested in maybe joining the friends group down at Cranbourne Botanic Gardens... um, they are uh, having a morning tea this morning uh, from 10 o'clock through till 12 um, just to so that you can uh, come along, meet current and new Cranbourne friends, find out about activities, fundraising, uh, committee work. You can bring a plate to share or you can just grab uh, a takeaway coffee from the cafe there. Uh, but that's happening 10 till 12 this morning and uh, afterwards uh, Roger Elliott will lead a short tour of Godwana for those who are interested. So uh, if you've ever thought about uh, joining up the Friends Group, we'll um, hop in the car and head to yes. Cranbourne this morning. Why not? You might not be able to listen to the end of the program, though. Well, they can <laughs> listen in the car. Oh, yes, of course they can. Of course can. they can. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Now, coming up at uh, Cloud Hill, they've got uh, two more musical events taking place in the garden coming up. The first one is going to be next Saturday, 10th of February. Now, this will be uh, Evergreen Ensemble. Now, they play homage uh, to the music of the cold and windswept landscapes of the Scottish Highlands and Islands, as well as exploring their Scandinavian uh, roots. So uh, it'll be Scottish Baroque music, as you've never heard it before, arranged for electric viola da gamba, Celtic harp, harp Baroque violin, uh, Theobo, and the angelic voice of Claire Patty. That sounds yeah. rather that delightful. Sounds, yeah. And isn't it great the people are using their gardens for yes. things like that? Like and a garden Stephen's setting is just so... On a lovely summer's oh, evening, absolutely. is there anything nicer? Absolutely. So that is taking place, as I said, next uh, Saturday, the 10th of February. Uh, for bookings, you simply go uh, online to cloudhill.com.au or if you'd like to give the gardens a call, their number is 97511009. Now, as well as uh, Evergreen Ensemble, then the following Saturday, which takes us to the 17th of February, um, there'll be uh, music of uh, Jali Buba Kayale, which is the heart of Africa. Now, this will also be a twilight recital, and this is music from the Senegalese uh, Girot tradition, uh, and this, again, will be in the Cloud Hill Green Theatre. So, again, you go to uh, cloudhill.com.au or give the garden a nursery, uh, a ring, I mean, on uh, 97511009 to book in for that one as well. Now, uh, Friends of Burnley uh, Gardens have got their annual St Valentine's Day dinner in the Burnley Gardens coming up. This will be followed by um, an illustrated presentation by John Patrick speaking about gardens of the Channel Islands. Uh, Have you been to the Channel Islands, Mary? I have several times. Mm. Very beautiful. Guernsey. 
oh, this silver necklace I'm wearing was handmade on, on Guernsey. And right. It's, it's a traditional ship's anchor chain. But okay. A bit small, of course, to fit round my <laughs> I neck. I was going to say, it was a small <laughs> ship. A tiny, <laughs> tiny <laughs> ship. You would have been way down. <laughs> yes, <laughs> literally. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Okay. So that should be a very interesting talk. Um, of course, it's happening happening on St Valentine's Day, which is Wednesday, the fourteenth of February. Now, uh, the venue, of course, is Burnley College at five hundred Yarra Boulevard in Richmond. Um, five thirty for the dinner, um, or seven thirty for the talk. Uh, now, if you're coming to the meal and the talk, it's $25 for members of the Friends Group, $35 for non-members. If you're coming to the talk only, $10 for members, $20 for non-members. Now, bookings are essential. You can phone the uh, Friends office, which is 9035-6815. Now, you'll need to leave a message on that phone line, or you can email friends.burnley at gmail.com. Okay, also coming up on the 11th of February, uh, Werribee Park Heritage Orchard has got their summer grafting back. Now, this is usually a fantastic day, and because it's stone fruit season, um, this is where they're hoping to inspire you to add a peach, an apricot, or a plum tree to your home garden. Now, you simply choose the variety of heritage fruit you'd like to grow and one of their skilled members will graft it onto a new rootstock for you to take home. Alternatively, you can uh, graft it yourself at home. So they've got both scion and rootstocks for sale on the day. There'll be lots of other stalls and entertainment as well. The local CWA is providing food and refreshments. Rotary members are directing traffic via Gate 5. Uh, the Kareni Gardeners hope to have a stall selling their plant varieties from the kitchen garden and there'll be local native plants and old-fashioned favourites from Werribee Park Gardens also for sale. Plus they've got the usual hours uh, tours of the orchard. There'll be grafting demonstrations and uh, lots of established fruit trees for sale including heritage apples and pears. So that's all happening Sunday February the 11th, 10am through to 3pm. Uh, go to Werribee Park Homestead, enter via Gate 5. Uh, cost, entry is free. Uh, trees grafted to order uh, range from $15. And uh, if you'd like to look at what varieties they have, you can go to their website, which is Werribee Park Heritage Orchard, all one word, dot org, dot au. Uh, now, uh, and this is one you know about, Stephen. State uh, Dahlia Show is oh, coming yes. up, yeah. mm. February twenty fourth and twenty fifth. Uh, now, the times and dates, as I said, twenty fourth and twenty fifth on the Saturday, twelve thirty till five on the Sunday, ten till three thirty. The venue is the Mount Waverley. Well, I've always known as Mount Waverley Community Centre, but they've, they've got here Mount Waverley Youth Centre, so I don't know if they've re-jigged yeah. the centre, but anyway. It's the same place, though, isn't it? The same address. 43 Miller Crescent, Mount Waverley, that opposite Mount familiar. Waverley Railway yeah. Station. So, yeah. exactly, yeah. Mm. Now, admission is $5, pension is $2, children are free. There's going to be um, a fabulous display of dahlias. There'll be cut flower sales, plant sales, Devonshire teas. There'll be a kids' corner with activities involving dahlias. Oh, 
What are they going to do with those? Pluck the petals <laughs> yeah. off one by one. Yes. Actually, a big double one would take you ages to do Loves Me, Loves Me Not. Yes. <laughs> there'll be a photographic exhibit and uh, there'll be expert dahlia growers on hand to give advice. So that's all happening February 24th and 25th. So, of course, I'll mention that um, again uh, next week and closer to time. The other one that's happening um, uh, is the Melbourne Begonia Society. Uh, they've entitled their show Everything Old is New Again. Now, this is being held at the NG Wishart Senior Citizens Hall. This is at 964 Nepean Highway in Moorabbin there. Melway's reference is 77D6. And again, that's that same weekend, 24th of February, 10 till 4, 25th of February, 10 till 3. There'll be display and sales of begonias, many varieties, only available at the show. Entry is $3. There'll be Devonshire tea and sausage sizzle. And if you'd like to find out any more, you can phone Janine. Her number is 0404-817-449. Okay, I might uh, leave the rest for a little bit longer if we have a bit more time in the program. But, Meryl, I wanted to talk to you because um, you and I, quite by sheer accident, accident yes. bumped into each other in the middle of Japan <laughs> at the end of last which year. Was, which it was a great happens treat. happens all the time. <laughs> It was quite amazing. But I noticed that uh, you're taking tours back to Japan this year, but we were both there in, in Japanese autumn time last yes, year. Yes. This time you're doing two tours, one in, in spring blossom time yes. and one in Japanese autumn time, all those beautiful maples. So oh. um, I wanted to have a little bit of a chat because although you said your tours for this year – are booked out, yes. you are running the Spring Blossom Tour again next year and, and there's still places on that. Yes, the bookings have just opened for spring in Japan. But it's not all about blossoms. The cherry blossoms is the famous bit of uh, spring in Japan, but it can be fleeting in the extreme. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> One big wind and it's all over, Red Rover. But spring in Japan is about much more than just the blossom they have a wondrous array of plant material and flowering plant material. And because a lot of their plants are woodland-type plants, they do tend to flower in the late winter, early spring. Right. And so it's about much more than the blossoms. Although we're trying hard to catch the blossoms because we've planned to sort of go up and down in altitude, up into the mountains and down to the seaside. So hopefully you'll catch it somewhere. Somewhere along the, the <laughs> yes. way. Yes, it's all a big five-minute wonder. But if you manage to catch it, it is wondrous. And what is best about spring in Japan, winter's very cold in Japan and the Japanese... By the time the blossoms are coming and the flowers in the gardens are opening up and they do big mass plantings of flowers too, they're just so joyous about it being spring mm. and that winter's over, you know. They just go absolutely mad, <laughs> <laughs> mad with their planting and mad with enjoying it. So there's lots of cultural festivals as well and, and really what I love about the Japanese, amongst many things, 
is that they have a great sense of humour and they don't take themselves too seriously. You know, they're very happy to dress up and start cavorting about and being very silly indeed and having a whale of a time with the family. So They do like to party. They love a party. Any excuse for a party in Japan. In (laughs) fact, they'll take everybody's public holidays and and celebrations. It doesn't matter what it is. And they'll just run with it. And they go especially mad in the spring I think after the long cold winter so what we're trying to do is get up into the into the mountains and the more remote rural parts of Japan it's really quite off the beaten track Japan Mm. but to try and catch you know just some of that authentic um, wonderful celebratory spirit Mm. of spring in Japan so if we manage to catch some cherry blossoms that'll be a bonus but it's really all about the joy of spring and the flowers and plants. Mm. It's such a rich plant community in Japan. But Meryl, don't you love I, – I think the best part is getting out into the rural areas Absolute, of Japan. Yes. I mean, that's where you you really see Japan at Abs- its best, yes. the heart of Japan. Yes. Um, there's, there's tourist Japan and then there's real Japan. Exactly, yes. exactly. And I just loved it when, when on our tour we managed to get out into the countryside and leave those big bustling cities behind. Yes, And what is great too is the cities are very contained. They're very intense, but they are contained. And Mm. there's almost a line and you step over the line and suddenly you're in the forest and the mountains and very rural areas and traditional areas. And I, I love the Japanese culture for many aspects, but it's such a strong culture and such an old culture. It's, it's, it's strong and it lives very well and they, they're very intent about keeping it living, mm. their traditions going and mm. they honour their traditions and, and their past. Mm. What do you think um, <clears throat> the average Australian uh, person who goes to Japan takes and brings home from looking at Japanese gardens because they yes. are such a, an extreme compared to the way we garden here. It's a totally different concept, isn't it? It's completely. Uh, yes. I mean, I, I mean, uh, just just talking to the people on on the tour I was on. Everyone got very unfortunately disillusioned with their own gardens back home while they were in Japan. It was sort of like, oh, my garden's such a mess. In comparison, I'm, yes. I'm going to have to go home, and but you can't. I mean, you no, you we ha- can't do it. We don't come do from that tradition. It's you haven't got and when the we time try to do it. We make an awful hash of it. We do. I mean, Japanese gardens here don't you. really work. They don't. Gel. No, no. I mean, you know, you can't just whack a, a stone lantern and a zigzag bridge in and assume you've got. And a that, Japanese it's not garden. a Japanese garden. <laughs> no, no. A, a clump of bamboo. <laughs> on the other hand, who knows? You know, it's it's but. But I mean, if you see a team of women, you know, on their on their hands and knees, manicuring the, the moss. moss. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just yeah, unbelievable. Can't do those things. No. no, and and whatever they do, uh, well, I think one of the things I bring home from Japanese gardens is whatever you choose to do, do it well. Don't try and do too much. Yes, they are the masters of restraint. Oh, and and one. Beautiful, beautiful thing, superbly done, is worth ten half done things. Yes, yes. and good and, point. And it's all about balance and structure, and being able to conceive of the garden in a three-dimensional sense. That when you walk around it, it works from every viewpoint. It's mm. not just a single 
viewpoint. Yes. And so there's lots of things that you can learn. It's about, well, it's like Japanese art. It's also about the empty spaces, that that there is structure and then there's the bits in between. And as far as the Japanese are concerned, the bits in between are more important. Mm. It's the space. It's Mm. it's dealing Mm. with space. I mean, that all sounds terribly technical and philosophical and all that sort of thing. But you can actually do it very practically and and easily once you get your head around the way they think about Mm. things. And it is a revelation. I I guess... um what what I could I could identify with more was some of the big Japanese what they call stroll gardens. Yes, um, because um, because what they've done is simply create that you you keep having a surprise. You turn yes. a corner, yes, and and you still might be looking at, at much the same view, but they've planted another tree, just yeah, very or specific. just placed a rock, or yes, yes, and so you get a surprise, and the view has changed, yes, just by by changing direction a fraction. And, and, but that is also <clears throat> true of um, gardens in many other parts of the world. I think it's a it's an element of success in many different gardening traditions that aspect of surprise and the change and creating a different atmosphere in different areas. Good gardens that you don't have to be able to explain why you like a garden. I guess it's like enjoying a good wine or you don't need to know the technical stuff. You just need to know, yeah, I really like that. It it rings a bell inside me. Yes. Um, And that's one of the elements that all over the world is common to Mm. really, really good, really enjoyable gardens mm. is that element of surprise, the, the constant change, the being able to walk around it and see it from all different viewpoints and, and you get a surprise mm. each time, yeah. Mm. Tell me, um, maybe mention a couple of your favourite gardens that you go back to and visit every time you go to Japan. Oh, gosh, that's a tough one because we do, you know, different itineraries yes. in Japan um, is there anything that really stands out that, oh, I must go back and see that again? I think the strolling gardens uh, are the ones that I really enjoy. There's some beautiful strolling gardens in Kyoto. Kyoto's really the, you know, the home of, of the, the centre point of Absolutely. gardens. Absolutely. But there are some other very beautiful ones uh, outside of Kyoto that are not much visited and that's mm. what we're going to try and try and do. But... Uh, I think it's a sense of space in them, Mm. which is surprising in a country so very intensely populated as Japan. That's what I find really surprising is um, that the cities do really stop. They're very self-contained, as I mentioned. And you can't imagine that a small landmass with such a big population can have so much empty wilderness forest space just to enjoy. Exactly. But going back to your uh, original question. Um, There's a beautiful garden in Haikoni, which I never, ever get tired of visiting. Well, I never get tired of visiting any gardens. I'm just a a tragic, really. (laughs) But it's uh, a garden that's attached to a private art collection. And once a year, for about a fortnight, he opens the private side of his garden. Ah. So there's two different parts of the garden uh, there's a moss garden and it's very simple it's just beautifully trained Japanese maples assorted colors in mm. in the autumn with a carpet of moss underneath it and it's so simple so absolutely magic 
But then the private part of the garden is uh, a rockery. But this is rockerying on a scale that we can own. You know, you need big cranes to get these rocks in. They're gigantic rocks. And so it's climbing all up and down the rocks with plants and foliage and little waterfalls all just tucked in amongst the rocks. It's absolutely magic. So if I if I came to a point where I had to say I can only ever visit one more garden in my life, it's never going to happen. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> if that mad point came, yes. that would be the one I'd go back to. Wow. Yeah. That sounds great. Yeah. Okay. If people um, are at all interested um, in, in maybe um, trying to come along um, next year mm. when you do have some places, what's the best way of them getting in touch with you, Mira? Uh, either to phone or to email. So if you just look up on the web, Country Farm Perennials, we'll, our website will pop up and it's got all our contact details. So okay. either phone call or email is perfect. And yep. If you're interested in going to Japan, not just for cherry blossoms. No. <laughs> in I like April the way you keep mentioning that. <laughs> yeah, I always think of cherry blossoms as barometer plants because as soon as they come into flower, the wind picks up. It That's does. exactly yeah, right. Yeah, yes. So, yeah, so they, you know, as, as beautiful as they can be, you've got to be there at the right moment. I tell you and what, that always happens with my wisteria too. Oh, yes. yes. As soon as it's out in flower, we'll get a wind or a rain squall. And, yeah, and, yes. and, and oh, it's over again. It's yeah. over. Yeah. I like the carpets on the ground. Oh, they, yes, they, they, they really are beautiful. Agreed, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's wonderful. Well, it's more than time that we invited our listeners to join us. If you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning, um, I hope you've been saving them up, thinking about them <laughs> yes. over January. We'd love to hear from you. That number is 94190155 to speak to the team on air. Or this morning we have Doug on the outside line. If you'd like to have a chat to Doug um, or ask him a question, 94198377. Okay, Stephen. Let's. Um, you brought in a couple of plants. Which... Yes, um, I thought we'd be, we'd start the season off with green. Um, just well, you've green. gone very green. Yeah, just green. <laughs> um, still, my favourite colour in the garden. Yes. Um, you know, especially those... at this time of the year when you're really <laughs> hanging out for green. Yeah, well, exactly. Our lawns aren't always green now, so yeah, so. Good foliage in the garden can be really important, I think, and it's how you use it and, and, and what you're planting. And the things I brought down this morning are all things that grow well in the shade um, and particularly will cope with dry shade, which is one of the hardest things we have in our garden is. is dry shade. Um, and there are levels of dry shade. I regularly see something that says for shade and, 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 and in fact, might even specify that it's drought tolerant, and I'll plant it in my garden and kill it because... You know, we have a really hydrophobic soil in the in the um, summer, and I've got lots of big eucalypts. And when we say dry, I mean really desert dry. dry. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter how much water I pour in; uh, things just you know will crisp and die. Uh, so I've found a palette of plants that I can rely on, even in those really difficult conditions, to grow really well. And one of them is one you don't see around terribly much, uh, mainly because it's a bit slow growing. And that's the other thing with things that grow really well in dry shade. They tend not to be vigorous things. They tend to be, they just cope and they manage to keep going and they just grow slowly and, and gently because they haven't got the moisture to pump them up. Or if you make the mistake of letting them out into good going, they go really well. Well, sometimes they do. You're <laughs> Over right. well. Yes. Yeah. But the one I'm going to talk about now probably won't do that any 
anywhere and in any conditions. It's a, a thing called Danae, Danae racemosa, which is related to Ruscus and a few other plants that people might be familiar yes, with yep. in that sort of asparagaceae family. Yes. Um, and Danae is also known as Alexandrin laurel. Um, it was actually used for wreath, laurel wreaths. Laurel yeah. wreaths. Um, and it has, well, the foliage isn't foliage. This is where the tricky bit comes up with all that group of plants. Um, uh, like Ruscus, they're actually modified bracts. They're not leaves at all. So they're, they're fairly hard. Mm-hmm. They're glossy. Um, and Danae has a very nice habit. It has this lovely sort of arching habit. So it'll get up to about a metre tall. Um, but with the arch of the stems and the clump that it will eventually make from ground level, uh, it might be a metre and a half to two metres across mm-hmm. uh, the whole plant. So uh, one well-grown old Danae can be quite a, a large That's plant. A nice feature too, a nice a great plant, and it would, you know, if you could buy it in bulk, and it's not easy to buy, let, let alone buy in bulk, it would make a really good ground cover plant under big trees because mm. uh, if you planted them sort of about a metre apart, you'd end up with a great drift of them. Because the branches come up and arch over, especially under, decid- under deciduous trees, you get a huge leaf drop in the autumn, and the leaves will fall down amongst it so it won't get smothered. A lot of people plant little low-ground covers, and, and unless they're really strong, yes, they just get swamped smothered. by the by the leaf litter that falls down, yeah. whereas the leaf litter will drop in amongst Danae and then disappear. Um, it gets little clusters of white flowers on the ends of the stems. Um, unlike Ruscus, it's self-pollinating, so it will produce fruit on an individual plant, whereas with Ruscus you need to have boys and girls if you're going to get berries, unless you're lucky enough to have the hermaphrodite ones. And um, uh, I've been looking at clumps of Danae in the Melbourne Botanic Gardens for years thinking, I wonder how I can convince the Melbourne Botanic Gardens to I let me come this. in with a spade. Because you know? <laughs> um, I hadn't seen it commercially anywhere. And anyhow, the, the um, Tease Boys eventually got it from somewhere or another, and I managed to get it from them uh, several years ago. And I've now got a couple of plants in the garden at home that are really starting to make some impact. And they're in the darkest, dingiest spots in the garden. Mm. Um, um, and it just makes such a good, good. Plant. I like the glossiness of the mm. leaves, a really emerald glossy yeah. green, which in shade that that gloss helps mm. the plant to sparkle oh, and light does. up that oh, yes. shady and area. And I might add, any of this group, uh, the Ruscuses, the Danae's, any of that group of plants, are also really good cut foliage. If you're looking for something to put in a vase, yep. uh, I've cut ruscus that's lasted me about three months in water uh, and still looking good so I can just keep replacing the flowers amongst the foliage Mm -hmm. uh, and just keep reusing it. Uh, Once you've got a big clump of Danae you could do the same and of course it's not strictly a shrub, it's actually a an evergreen perennial and so you can grow it by divisions if you want to get more plants going but it is a slow process so don't be impatient with them and I certainly wouldn't be digging it up and dividing it on a regular basis otherwise you'll never end up with a big plant Um, and yeah it's just one of those sort of quiet achievers in a garden Mm. I mean it's probably not one of those yeah not one of those plants that will even stand out to a lot of people Uh, I mean real plants people will pick up on it because it's different and And and, graceful yeah and they notice it other people will just see greenery that's filling a corner yes Um, uh, and perhaps not appreciate what they're actually looking at. Um, and I, I just think it's a fabulous plant. And I've got a sense it's probably edible because you can eat the young shoots yes, of ruscus. Yes, um, which they love in Europe. Yeah, it's yeah, they call like it wild asparagus exactly, or whatever. And um, it's tasty. Yeah, so, and I've got a sense that you could probably do the same with Danae, but I haven't actually done any research on it. I'd have to have a look. But because it's so slow growing, I don't think you're going to get many meals out of it. Um, but it's, it's sort of fun to know that a plant can be used for something else, even if you don't. Mm. Um, it's just one of those sort of interesting bits of trivia that you can sort of so, have. So is that 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 
wild asparagus we saw in France when we went up to Normandy in the Loire Valley, was that really Ruskus shoes? No. No, no, no. That, that was, was quite a spa- different. That, that, that was, was a that true was asparagus. A, true asparagus. Uh, the Ruskus shoots are very fine and very small. Okay. Um, you'd, you'd know immediately if you saw them being served to you. Um, and they love them in the southwest of France. Okay. Because it does grow in dry shade. It's yeah. uh, a plant that, you know, will just inhabit woodland there and they go out and gather it in the, right. the mm. spring. But southwest France is yeah. the home of it. Okay. Speaking of. Yes. Well. Southwest France. We're going to be in the south of France coming up in in, in not very May. long. <laughs> yeah, it's not that far off. Yeah, so we'll be in in southern France doing a tour there. So we do have space on that tour still. So if anybody was interested and has a sudden rush of blood and they would like to come with Pam and I, yes, Pam and Cordella coming as well. Um, uh, we're doing the south of France from the sixth of uh, May to the twenty sixth of May or twenty seventh of May uh, via Australian Studying Abroad. So if anybody wants to come on that tour, we have space. Uh, it should be a fantastic tour. We're getting into lots of interesting private gardens. Um, I know we've got at least one Michelin hat meal involved and. You know, staying in pretty swish hotels and all that sort of stuff. So it should be fun. And we'll hopefully go and find some wild ruscus while we're there and show yes. people. We, uh, we must have a look for it. Yes, we must keep an eye out for yeah. some wild ruscus. Yes. Yes, so, um, yes, so Danae, which is spelled D-A-N-A-E, uh, is a plant worth looking out for, but it's not regularly available. So you'll have to do a bit of hunting to get it. Uh, but I'd certainly recommend it and ruscus and any of that group of plants. I've actually got something in the garden at home that I'm hoping eventually will set seed uh, from the Canary Islands, a thing called Similli, uh, Similli androgyny, which is also in the same family, grows well in dry shade, but it's actually a climber. And it runs up things. It sort of twirls its way around. We, Craig and I saw it growing in the laurel forests in uh, La Gomera, one of the Canary Islands we went to. Um, and it has, again, the bracts that look like leaves, but they're quite large. And when it flowers, it flowers around the edges of the bracts. Oh, yes, it's yes, tiny yes, little white yes. flowers that run around the edges of the bracts. And because it's uh, also self-pollinating, hence androgyny, um, uh, it will fruit as an individual plant. But I've got one plant of it in the garden at home that's getting bigger and bigger it's growing up through an autumn cherry uh in the garden and it's sent up stems i suppose about or oh, be over two meters tall now uh, but it still hasn't deigned to flower for me and set any seed and that's going to be the only way i'm going to be able to grow any similes uh, but it's an amazing looking plant i'm not quite sure how people will use it in their gardens because it does need somewhere to climb but it will grow in really dry dark shade mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. and it's a remarkable thing when you see these tiny tiny little white flowers all ringing all right around the edge of the mm-hmm. leaf uh Really I love good. arching plants. I mm. think there's such a handy shape to have yeah. in the garden. I'm enjoying some of the late dioramas, the fairy yeah. fishing rods at oh, the yes. moment in our garden. And the last one to flower for us is diorama Reynoldsii. Uh, it, it's a beautiful thing. It's a medium-sized diorama, so not too big, would fit into any any size garden. But lovely long arching stems of very dark Oh, sort of really deep brick red Mm. bells at this time of the year. You know, when you're starting to struggle a little bit for for colour in the garden, everything's getting a bit bleached and parched, but not the dioramas. They're just hitting their Mm. straps and the late one, Reynoldsi eyes, a beauty to watch out for. Fantastic. Fantastic. Mm. We've we've got got our first uh, caller. We're going to go to Julie, who's in Hillsville. Good morning, Julie. Hi, Pam. (laughs) I meant to ask you the other day, did you notice the cooch grass that's growing all through those um, 
ground cover roses. You know that second archway down the steps? Yes, yes, yes. Um, growing into the roses and up the Barry's hoop roses. And I, I don't know how to kill it off without killing the roses. What do I, what do, I do with that? It drives me crazy. <sighs> yes, well... Cooch grass is one of those weeds. Uh, it's just persistence. I mean, unless you're going to use sprays and you've got to be terribly careful using yeah. things oh, like yes. glyphosate round oh, roses. Yes. Yeah, because they hate it. They yes. um, uh, so unless you work with it? Pardon? Would Flasher kill it off without killing the roses? Or? I don't know. I've not used it, so I'm not confident of the product, I have to say. One, so. one thing that might be useful, oh, how to describe it? You know a deodorant stick? Yeah. Uh, it's... Sort of like a a gel, like a like a soap bar. You can actually get a weed killer in that form, like oh, a deodorant stick. Mm. Yes, and I think I've used that elsewhere, and I, I wasn't that rapid. It did no. It it doesn't deliver a real big hit, <laughs> no, but but no. pers- using it persistently, and at least you're able to protect the rose because roses are very sensitive to glyphosate or any oh. airborne. Chemicals, so that might be a way of at least weakening it down, attacking mm. it. Yeah, and of course it'll have its rhizomes in amongst the roots of the roses oh, and what yeah, have you, so you yes. can't sort of dig it out um, no. safely. So it, it may just be a matter of persistently just you know taking it off at ground level uh, uh, and not allowing it to to send up much green growth. But that's hard work. But it's probably the only yeah. way you're going to get on top of it. Well, it's also hard time. because it's underneath the roses, and mm. you, you're yeah. getting scratched while you're trying you to just work. Can't on... get into underneath no. the no. roses. No, one of the disadvantages of ground cover roses is the fact that they're still prickly. Because yes. the weeds, and, then, <laughs> and they're not really thick ground cover. No, so the weeds can get up through <laughs> yes. them. So they they do have their limitations. I think the ground cover roses. I have to yeah. say, yes. uh, there was a certain well-known rosarian that I reckon used to plant a rose garden. And then she'd sell it as it became a nightmare (laughs) (laughs) and move on to another one. And uh, she created at least two, to my knowledge, in Victoria and another one in Tasmania um, that uh, I wouldn't have wanted to take on. Yes. Um, you could see the sort of blackberries coming up through the roses and, and, and all sorts of stuff, yeah. and how on earth you got in there to deal with them is beyond me. Yeah, so, well, I have that problem all the time because there's a lot of ground cover roses. Mm. Yes. And, uh, the blackberries yeah. and the pooch seem to. Oh, they love know it because it gives them a nice, gentle place to, to germinate and grow. Yeah. Um, yes. So they've got a nice, nice, hidden away little posse to become yeah. a monster before you even see them. Okay, well, I'll just have to wait till I'm in a really patient mood and go out with very heavy gloves on and pull them out. Attack. (laughs) Yes. Yes, unfortunately. I might add, too, that if you things like cooch grass, if you are going to use any sort of chemical thing, uh, it will work much more effectively on young, fresh growth that's coming up after you've given it a a hiding. Um, And, of course, you've not got as much stuff to try and get the chemical onto. Um, So you're far better to – sounds odd to do this, but you're far better to pull all the stuff off that you can – Wait for regrowth. In fact, water and feed nicely to get it nice and vigorous, and right. then hit it with something. Okay. And and you could also just mix up liquid and use a paintbrush and paint it on that new growth. Yes. So well, that I you do that with bamboo that's coming from next yes. door and heading to my studio, and I'm scared it's going to come up through the concrete floor. You know, so I paint that with a paintbrush. After and it down, and at so least it's I'll... systemic. So as long yeah. as you get it on some of it, it's going to take it down into the yeah, the so roots. I might, I might do Persistent paint the... work, I reckon. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes, I think that might be the answer. <laughs> okay. Thanks very much. Okay. Good luck. Bye. Okay, bye.
Yes, the cooch grass is one of those weeds that was sent to try us. I'm oh, yes, yes. Uh, absolutely. Curse of a thing. You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. Yes, we're back for 2018. Um, we're running through until 9.15, our usual time slot. So if you'd like to uh, ring in and ask a gardening question this morning, uh, to speak to the team on air, 94190155, or to have a chat to Doug on the outside line, 94198377. We do have uh, Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants and Meryl Johnson from Country Farm Perennials in the studio this morning. So we'd love to hear from you, 94190155 or 94198377. Double seven. Stephen, back to the next plant. All right, well, we might talk about the sarcococcus, uh, another group of, and funnily enough, it's sort of like um, similar evolution in the fact because the sarcococca looks rather like the Danae. Yes. Uh, and yet they're not related. Um, sarcococca is in a quite different plant family. And there's a range of different species in the group. They're all small evergreen shrubs. Um, they're winter flowering. The flowers are not particularly spectacular. They're little white stamen things. But many of them have a very strong and pervasive perfume. Winter that, perfume, yeah, which, which is gorgeous. Yeah, wafts around the gardens. Um, this particular one I bought in is one of the dwarf ones. It only probably grows to about 30, 60 centimetres tall. But um, some of the bigger ones like um, Sarcococca ruscifolia, which sort of links in with the other group of plants, even though they're not related. Um, I've seen it get up to a metre and a half to nearly two metres, and it has quite quite a long arching sort of habit as well. Uh, the sarcococcus are probably not quite as drought tolerant as the Danae's and Ruscus's, but they still cope with fairly dry conditions and they will grow quite well in fairly heavy shade. Um, they're known as Christmas box in uh, in England. Um, uh, because they're flowering in the middle of winter exa- when it's Christmas. <laughs> yes, exactly. So it's not a name that translates terribly well here. No. Um, so, um, and again, they're one of those sort of, ignored little groups of shrubs that you don't see terribly often around. And I think they're uh, rather useful plants and, um, again, something that we should be looking for. Most of them will get berries on and the berries will vary from black ones to red ones depending on the variety that you've planted. Um, and, you know, they, and there's just almost various heights that start from something that's probably about 30 centimetres at most up to about two metres. So there's a range of different sarcococcus. And I have noticed that um, the perfume does tend to be slightly different in the different species and sometimes okay. more intense in some species than others. Uh, so there is a variety of scents involved. So it's not all just the one perfume throughout. Um and, yeah, they're great little shrubs and, uh, again, not overly rampant growing. You know, they're just steady doers. Um, they make quite good pot plants in a shady aspect, so mm. they probably grow quite well on a pot on a veranda and, or something. And they're easily pruned. They don't mind being pruned. Yeah, you no, can they can keep hack them, them back if you want to. They're shaped up yeah. if you want to. Yeah, so sarcococca, it's got a lot of seas and things in it. <laughs> uh, and... Um, uh, I think they're great little shrubs, so definitely worth looking out for. And the perfume is lovely for those who are looking for scented plants. And it's funny how some of our really strongly perfumed plants do tend to be winter flowering. Well, it's yeah, you know, they need you, to drag yeah. in the pollinators yeah, from so long we've got, distance. Yeah, our Daphnes and our winter sweets and all those sort of things, mm. the witch hazels, all those plants that have winter flowers and also a nice perfume. So I think the psychococcus are definitely worth looking out for if you're looking for shade-tolerant and attractive evergreen shrubs. Mm, mm. And the third one? Well, the third one's a really bizarre thing that I imported a few, well, quite some years ago now. Um, It's actually a cross between a Berberus and a Mahonia. 
And so it's a Maho Berberus. Oh, goodness. Uh, and it's, and it's really very well armed. One. Yes. Uh, it's a really interesting shrub. It's very drought tolerant, very shade tolerant. Uh, it grows up to around about a metre and a half, two metres tall. You tend to have straight stems that come up from ground level, so it's, it's got quite a vertical sort of feel about the bush. Uh, and its leaves vary from completely unarmed uh, sort of lanceolate foliage to slightly armed foliage to very prickly holly-like leaves on uh, the plant and it goes backwards and forwards through these things. Some of the leaves will get sort of uh, trifoliate sort of stipulated things at the base of them so they look like there's sort of three leaflets together. Um, it sort of can't make up its mind. Yeah, it's uh, having an identity crisis. It is having yeah, an obviously. identity crisis. Uh, <laughs> it wants to be a holly, but it's just a bit It's scared. not allowed yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and like, of course, the, the, its relatives, the Mahonias, uh, it gets yellow winter flowers uh, mm. and it gets them in clusters. Um, if it's out in enough of an open aspect in an area where you get cold winters, uh, like some of the Mahonias and things that will colour in its foliage in the winter, get that sort of blush of burgundy through its leaves. If it's in fairly heavy shade, though, it'll stay a, a really glossy, rich green. Um, and I think it's a charming plant. Uh, of course, there's a good chance that Mahonias and Berberuses are all going to get dumped into the one genus anyway, because if you look at the flower of a Mahonia and the flower of a Berberus, they're indistinguishable as far as the structure and so forth is concerned. So the only thing that kept Mahonias and Berberuses separated was that Mahonias had compound leaves and Berberuses had simple leaves. It's the only reason that they were kept separated. So they're, And apparently molecularly uh, they're, they're very similar. So there's a good chance Mahonia is going to get dumped into Berberus in due course. But uh, mm-hmm. at the moment they're still kept separate. So this is an intergenetic hybrid as it stands at the moment called Mahono Berberus Aqui Sargentii, because it's a cross between uh, Mahonia aquifolium and Berberus Sargentii. So the no wonder it's confused. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, uh, <laughs> so was I. Um, but I think it was a worthy import because it grows well in dry shade. It's got great foliage. Uh, it has an interesting structural form to it. Um, it's reasonably good doer, so it grows reasonably quickly. Um, and it can be pruned back if you if you desire to do so. Um, and I've got a couple of them in the garden at home, and they really sort of fill up a nice space, and they, they look really good. And they flower for me in the winter when I'm – Always happy to have something blooming. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so intergenetic hybrids can be fun because there's some really odd plants that have shown up um, from that sort of thing. Of course, when you do get an intergenetic hybrid, it does show that there's very close uh, relationships sometimes between the two genera, and it can be one of those things that then points out the fact that you really need to dump them together anyway. Yes, they're and really all the one family. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're really all the same thing. So, it, yeah, <laughs> so that's possibly what's going to happen to that group of plants as right. well. So there'll be a whole pile of new name changes that we'll have to get our heads around um, if you in fact, it happens. Okay. And, oh, I don't know. I can't keep up. <laughs> no, they keep changing them on us. <laughs> yes, yes. It does get very confusing. Uh, and I don't know that uh, Australian plant uh, collectors are going to get their head around the fact that uh, uh, Malaleuca and Callistamine have been dumped in together. Um, they're going to have some real struggles with that. Mm. Yeah, Callistamine doesn't exist. Mm. Gone. 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 Oh, no. If you believe those botanists. (laughs) And I am sure there are other people out there in the field that are saying, no, 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 we've got to keep keep polystamine. (laughs) You know, so, yeah, so that sort of thing's happening all the time. Well, someone who might have an opinion on that is um, our good friend Gwen Elliott. Oh, yes. Good Good morning, morning, Gwen. Gwen. (laughs) Good morning, everyone. And I don't think we'll ask Stephen to spell out that last plant he was talking about. Mahono Berberus Aqui Sargentii. No, I'd rather not. I struggle to say it. 
true enough. All right, before you say whatever you've got to say, what's your attitude on the Callistamon Melaleuca issue? Oh, look, it's, it's... No, names are only a tool, and also pronunciation. You know, I don't get my knickers in a knot over how things are pronounced. Yeah, fair um, enough. And it's, it's only a tool, and it helps us now... I mean, for you and I and other people of the same generation, calistamins, bottle brushes will always be calistams, yes. uh, calistamins, but if, if they're, you know, so close that you can't distinguish between them, that's not a problem either. So mm. names are only a tool to be used and, you know, not to get too fussed about. No. <laughs> I like that attitude. have obviously <laughs> got valid reasons why they should be um, separate, but, um, you know... Roger's just walked into the room and he's making all sorts of gestures. Can I put him on and he can just mention whatever <laughs> yes, he's going to Yes, please do. Yeah, it? what a good idea. Here he is. G'day. Morning, good Roger. Callistamins haven't gone. Oh, they oh. haven't? No, 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 no. Well, no. then who spread that rumour? Oh, probably people from Canberra and New South Wales. <laughs> oh, so it was the people on the other side of the border's fault. <laughs> yeah, no, look, there's been a lot of work done that... Uh, Royal Botanic Gardens, Melbourne, looking at Callistamins and Melaleucas. Yeah. And uh, there's a very strong viewpoint coming out of their research saying that Callistamin is a really valid, solid yeah. genus mm-hmm. and it's Melaleuca, etc., which need cleaning up. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Does that mean it might be split or...? Yeah, well, the Melaleuca... Yeah, well, there's a whole group of other things, Kunzias. Oh, yes. And... Yeah. Uh, things called Aramaeas and all that group, Regelias, and they need some work on. But anyway, no, no Clistamin's good. Oh, good. Oh, all right. Great. Well, I'm sort of rather relieved about that because I wasn't <laughs> quite sure how I was going to cope. But anyway. No, well, Stephen, you will, you, you'll be able to cope. Yeah, all right, good. Fantastic. Yeah, okay. Thank you, Roger. See ya. Bye. <laughs> okay, Bye. Pop Gwen back. Okay, it's me again. Yes. <laughs> With what I really rang about. Now, look, we were talking about... Um, uh, weed killers and that before, particularly with the, the roses and the grasses and that. Yes. And I thought I could share with you an experience that I had many years ago. We were plagued with um, morning glory vine coming oh. in from next door for ages and ages. And one stage, you know, I sort of thought, I'm going to fix this. So I got a little plastic bottle and put weed killer in it and put the end of the morning glory vine into the weed killer and sealed it all up and everything and thought, right, that'll fix her. It did, but it also killed off the branches of the plant that the morning glory was twined around. Oh, goodness, really? Now, we didn't touch that physically at all, or I didn't. Yes. um, But, you know, it transferred from the foliage of one plant to another. And I think, you know, we do have to be careful with the use of um, the glyphosate things now because I don't know whether if you just sort of put it on the leaves of the grass, whether the roots in contact with the rose roots would have any effect. Mm. I don't know that. Mm. But I just thought I'd share my um, experience, experience, (laughs) which was not what I expected was going to happen. No. No, Certainly not what I would have expected either, I have to say. But did you really knock the morning glory out? Oh, well, by that stage I sort of, you know, disassembled my (laughs) magnificent um, invention and, you know, went back to sort of pruning it off as it came through the fence every time. Right. um, Which is, you know, about all you can do. Yeah. But, I mean, my other thought with the rose and the grass, I know that, you know, you can buy roses bare-rooted and silky um, 
nursery might have some ideas, but I wonder whether you actually dig up the root, uh, the, sorry, the rose in its dormant period and physically remove all the grass then and then, and then replant yes. Yeah, well, that yeah. may be the way to go at the end. Uh, if the only problem is if you leave the tiniest little node of root, <laughs> you're back where you started yeah. from in, know, in 12 months' time. Yeah, yeah, you'd have to wash the roots of the rose very carefully. And, and yes, sift yes, the yes. soil almost, mm. yes. yes. Anyway, I'll leave it all up to you guys. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful, well, Good Gwen. to hear your voice, yes, Gwen. lovely. You. Bye. 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 Right, next up we have uh, Siobhan in Cheltenham. Good morning, Siobhan. Hello. Good morning. Siobhan. Hello. I think she's listening to the radio and not to the phone. Siobhan, we can't hear you. Oh, good morning. Ah, oh, there you are. There she is. Hello. I'm Look, I'm just wondering, I've got two beautiful apricots that are fairly close together. We had buckets of apricots this year, mm. beautiful trees, but I'm wondering how hard back we should cut them in winter or what we should do to get more fruit next time. Mm. Well, I would do a summer prune. Oh. And so now you've done your, your, your fruit picking, I take it. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, I would prune back the long shoots on your apricot at this time of the year because if you do a winter prune on them, that stimulates extra growth. If you do a summer prune on them, it tends to hold them back a little bit so it keeps them sort of from shooting madly. And, of course, apricots are also prone to every sort of nasty fungal infection you can name. And a heavy winter prune can sometimes you yes. can get gummosis into the yes. stems. You yes. can get all sorts, oh. of, all sorts of dreadful disease issues with apricots. Um, so I'd be out there doing a summer prune. Oh, really? In the middle, just clean it all up in the middle and cut some of those long shoots back Yeah, yeah. try and yep. get that sort of vase shape back into your tree again. Yeah. Um, and you'll find that if you do it now, you won't get a huge regrowth of big, long caney bits mm. uh, because you've done the summer prune. But if you do that sort of pruning in the winter, the following spring... Oh, it goes have, crazy. Yeah, yes. you'll have these great long canes going absolutely everywhere. That's so I thought. would say now would be a good time to do it. Um, try not to do it if we're looking like we're going to get a stinking hot day within yes. a day or so. Right. Um, so sort of try and pick your timing yes. because once you take the canopy off from above foliage that hadn't been getting that much light will suddenly be in full sun and so it can Or else it. even protect it with a bit of shade cloth yeah, just well, for a week do, or yeah, two. You can yeah. do that too. I think it's a bit high for that now. Oh, okay. Yeah. And look, beyond that. Even if you do get a bit of foliage burn, it's not likely to be anything that's long-term an issue, but, you know, if you can do it when there's going to be a cool spell, all the better. Oh, thanks very much. That's good advice. All okay. Right. Good. Thank you. Good on you. Bye. Oh, if only I could say again, bucket loads of apricots. But anyhow, <laughs> uh, not not my climate. Anyhow. We are getting bucket loads of tomatoes, I'm delighted to say, which I'm so proud of because I live in a, you know, a, a climate, because we've got altitude, um, it cools down at night, even when it's a stinking yeah. hot day. I've always day, thought of you get... as a woman with altitude. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not all that tall. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the cold nights really do muck up the... The ripening yes, and the fruiting easy. of the mm. tomatoes. I've picked but, four. <laughs> <laughs> I've picked literally bucket loads, but we decided this year that we'd give up on the large fruiting tomatoes yeah. yes. in our climate. We just never get a run of hot weather for long enough to mm. ripen them up properly. So we've sort of gone for the cherry ones. Yeah. And uh, there's all sorts of new varieties of the smaller tomatoes yes. out there now. 
and they are just great. The, mm. the flavour in them is fantastic. Mm. And we've got bucket loads. For the first time in my life, I picked tomatoes before Christmas. Wow. I was so proud of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't. But anyhow, my plants are growing well. Um, but, yeah, I always end up with a lot of green ones. Yes. Mm. Yes, we do at the yeah. end of the season. But I think you, you're not alone. A lot of people have, have switched over to planting only the cherry type tomatoes well, a lot of the new ones they're more manageable they are and they don't have a, a really thick skin on them so That's that true. you can make passata or you know sort of <laughs> render them down to do yes. sauce and all that sort of thing yes. really very well and and what they lack in size they make up for in quantity and mm. nice and early yes so that, you just that's... need to slice more if you're doing tomato sandwiches. Yes, you do. That's right. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but you can make a mix then because we've got yellow ones and orange ones and red ones yeah. and pink ones and all sorts of. They look uh, fabulous in a salad. Salad, yeah. they really do. Yeah, yeah. no, no, great they're great. Flavors. And of course, they're wonderful if you've got young children around. Yes, because they yeah, can they just, just pick pop an them straight in no, the mouth. I thought you meant you'd throw them at the kids. But, uh... <laughs> no, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> they might throw them at you. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, dear. You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. We're running through until 9.15, our usual time slot. If you'd like to join us this morning and ask a gardening question, we'd love to hear from you. That number, 94190155, to speak to the team on air. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Doug on the outside line, 94198377. Okay, Meryl, um, um, dare I say it, um, six weeks to go until Melbourne International Flower yes. and Garden Show. Ah! <laughs> it's panic time. And you're going to be there in full force. We are there in full force. In fact, we're a greater force than ever this year. I don't know what, how we're doing it, but the nursery is absolutely stuffed, full of plants, ready for Mifkas. And we're, we're resorting to double-storey stacking now. <laughs> really? That's me. <laughs> So, folks, if you can't get to Nayuk or you can't send away for mail order, save up your your cents and dollars because Meryl will be there in force. You heard it from her. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) No, we've got some lovely new plants this year that we're really looking forward to sharing with gardeners. Um, There's a lovely new range of eucomas. We've been talking about plants that take dry conditions Mm. this morning. And the pineapple lilies or eucomus are, are an excellent example. They are concrete plants, what I call concrete plants. You know, they'll stand acres of neglect and, and just keep going year after year after year. But there's some lovely varieties around now. There's a, a, a relatively older one now called Oakhurst, which has got very dark burgundy chocolatey leaves and it, it's quite a statuesque plant. We were talking earlier about plants that have a lovely arching sort of fountain shape habit because they, they do make grace in the garden. And Eucomus oakhurst, the, the dark leaf pineapple lily, is just one of those. It's a lovely foliage clump and then when you get the flowers, they're just starting to flower at our place now. Um, lovely soft pink they they look like pineapples okay. with, with a sort of top knot on on top. So beautiful flowers, but as tough as old boots. Mm. But fairly new now, just in the last couple of years, are some little miniature ones which look 
stunning in pots or just a tiny corner of a garden, really suitable for small gardens. And there's one called freckles, and again, dark leaves, sort of almost a, a jade green background to the leaf with dark spots on it. Sounds a bit horrible, sounds a bit scrofulous, but it's not. It's, <laughs> it's really nice. Do you get people I, – I grew a couple of dwarf eucalyptuses for a couple of years, and I used to get people come into the nursery and say, oh, I can grow them bigger than that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I used to get that quite regularly. Yeah, I like uh, the little miniature yeah, ones. I do too. I think they're very cute. They're um, very cute. With and the little miniature ones have beautiful coloured flowers. The freckles has a a sort of deep rose pink pineapple flower, and and then there's one called dark star, which is really a dwarf. It's quite miniature, sort of little pointy, dark, dark, almost black leaves, and uh, a deep burgundy-coloured pineapple flower on it. And they look good mass-planted, you know, if you get sort of six or seven of them in a little group in the front of a garden bed or in a corner or in a pot. Gee, they look good. And and sort of that dark, moody colouring, mm. it, it mm. really shows up well in the bright light of, of mm. summer. So they're a handy plant for, for uh, dry places. Yes. Can you tease us with a couple more you might have out at Mifka's? Uh, well, they'll be the Eucomus that we're presenting at Mifka's this year. And right. We've got some lovely display models of them so people can see um, how to plant them. But some of these little dwarf ones I'm planting at the moment with little ground-covering artemisias, the silver-leaf oh, yes. artemisias, and the dark foliage against the silver, the silver bright yep. silver-grey foliage. It's very striking mm. indeed. Mm. So lots of little ground cover artemisias this mm. year to show off to mm. people as well. And again, so dry and heat-hardy. They mm. really glisten over the dry summer months. Yeah. Well, I mean, silver foliage plants are fantastic because they will contrast with so many other things in the garden. You can put any other colour with them you and really they look can. fabulous. Yes, yes. exactly. Yeah. And they make everything else look fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> Quite so. Yeah, exactly. That number again, if you'd like to join us this morning, 94190155 to speak to Stephen Ryan or Meryl Johnson here in the studio. Or if you'd like to have a, a chat with Doug on the outside line, Nine four one nine eight three double seven. One uh, special tour coming up that I haven't mentioned yet, and I really should make mention of it. Now, this is being run by Open Gardens Victoria uh, in partnership with the two thousand and eighteen Urban Agriculture Forum and Victoria's Sustainable Living Festival. Now, it's a tour of uh, Melbourne food gardens. Uh, and it's being led by um, our very own Karen Sutherland from Edible Eden Design. Now, they're going to, uh, as I say, it's a whole day tour, starting at 9 o'clock, ending at 5.30. Some of the, uh, the places they're visiting uh, are going to, firstly, they're starting off at William Anglis Institute in the city. Uh, Karen will discuss the model productive garden there she has designed to teach students how to grow harvest and use a variety of plants in their catering. Uh, Then the tour will visit Fair Share in Abbotsford uh, to see how this voluntary organisation grows and collects fresh food for supply to those in need. I went past that in the train um, only a couple of weeks ago. It's huge. Is it really? I I must go and have a closer look at it. I couldn't believe it. It's really huge. Well, I guess if you're going to grow food for people in need... 
you need, you need space to do it, don't you, I guess? You <laughs> and you need, need to be able food. to have a constant supply. Yes. 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 So, um, yeah, that will be fascinating. Uh, then following from that, they're going to explore uh, community gardens in Brunswick and see firsthand the food forest of a vibrant and very active local community of gardeners. Um, a visit to Days Walk Farm will show how young people are training to become food farmers with a view to increasing production in the inner city uh, and provide low mileage food for the markets and kitchens of Melbourne. And then the final stop will be to Gunya, which is Karen Sutherland's own garden there. Um, and then uh, the tour uh, heads back to William Anglis at the end of the day. So it should be a, an absolutely fantastic day. As I said, it, it starts at William Anglis at 9am. Uh, that's in Latrobe Street in Melbourne. Returns at 5.30pm. Morning and afternoon tea are provided. Uh, lunch is BYO. Tickets are $150 um, and they can be booked via Try Booking at www.opengardensvictoria.org.au. If you're interested in the 2018 Urban Agriculture Forum, uh, uh, that commences on Friday 23rd of February. Um, You can find details of that at www.uaf.org.au and the Victoria Sustainable Living Festival is on for the month of February and if you want more details on that, go to uh, www.slf-apply.org forward slash for details of that one. But that uh, that full tour of the uh, food gardens as I say, is uh, coming up 17th of February. So just go to Open Gardens Victoria. Um, well, that will bring up their, their website if you just punch in Open Gardens Victoria and you'll get all the details and uh, the bookings there online. Okay, we have our next caller. We have uh, Mary out in Bermorris. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, good morning. Um, Look, I wanted to ask you in view of your shade plants, I have a bed uh, about a metre by three metres by my front door. Mm -hmm. It's under the cover of the eaves. But I had this vision always of having it a little bit like the Japanese beds. I planted the small-leafed ivy in there. And part of that went well, but now it's it's not taking over to make it a mass planting like I wanted it uh, to be. Mm. Of course, it doesn't get any rain. I have to water it. But I'm wondering, can you suggest anything other than this small-leafed ivy that might grow there? Are you looking for something flat to the ground or are you happy to accept something that grows a little bit taller? No, I'd like it to be flat to the ground. Mm. Okay. And how much sun does it get? It doesn't get any actual sun. Okay. It gets light. Mm. Yes, no direct sun. No. Um, You could try um, some of the pachysandras. They're lovely ground covers. Now, sweetheart, spell that for me. (laughs) P-A-C-H-Y-S-A-N. D R A. I'm so pleased I asked you to spell it. <laughs> <laughs> and and they have very beautiful foliage. Mm. They cling to the ground, flat to the ground. 
they tend, there's all different sorts, but they tend to flower in the winter or the very early spring. And you can even get some beautifully scented ones. On the whole, white flowers, sort of oh, almost like calistamine flowers, sort all of right. fuzzy flowers, but uh, white, cream, sometimes tinge of pink, and uh, lovely scent in some of them. So they're a good ground cover for a condition, as you're speaking, not getting any direct sunlight. Are they, um, pardon me, uh, would they be hard to source? No. No, you should be able to get pachysandras around a bit. Um, yes. And, so. and there's disporums that you can try. They, some of the, the more miniature ones would be suitable. They make a, a sort of slightly arching, upright growth habit, but you can get quite, quite short mm. ones that would make a lovely thick uh, ground cover there for you. And, again, they look like a, a Solomon seal, little oh, yes. miniature Solomon seal, creamy mm. white bells. I'm wondering about Vinca minor. Well, yes, yeah. if it's a contained bed and it, yeah, it's yeah. not going to run around. Yeah, because the vinkers, you can get them in blue or white or there's a double sort of purpley coloured one. Or plum coloured yeah, ones. And yeah, and there's there's variegated leafed ones uh, and they stay very flat to the ground. Yes. Um, and uh, certainly some of the variegated ones are quite useful in the shade because they bring oh, a bit yes. of light and colour into yeah, the shade. So I, I can recommend illumination, mm. vinca minor illumination. Mm. Um, I've got it in a very dry conditions underneath a hedge uh, it's a raised hedge you know it's sort of a, a pleached hedge so bare trunks and then the hedge starts up in right. the air but right. very dry mm. underneath it and vinca minor illumination it's a dark green leaf center with a, a creamy and at some stages of the year almost a, a lime yellow edge mm. to it and beautiful sky blue flowers so Stephen's suggestion yeah. is a good yeah, one. I think Vinca could be well worth looking at. And because it is a contained bed, and I assume it's got a, a path or An something edging on, on the edge. that's not going to get out. Yes. Yeah. You can just sort of trim it off at the edges if yep. you need yes. to and keep yep. it in order. So, yeah, so that's another possibility. And, uh, again, uh, do you have that, Stephen? Uh, I've got Illumination and I have got Vinca Minor Ralph Shugart, which is a silver variegated yes, one. Yes, um, likewise, both. And I think I've got the, the double plummy one as well. Yes. It's just straight green. Elizabeth Cran, yeah, yes. Yeah, so yeah, so I've got at least two or three different uh, vincas up there, and I like them. I think they're uh, – I mean, Vinca Major is a dreadful uh, weed, but yes. <laughs> um, uh, Vinca Minor is quite controllable in a garden. and Especially uh, in a contained yeah. bed where it's not going to get away. Uh, it will grow reasonably dense, but I know – in my own garden, at least, that things like small bulbs and things manage to come through Get it through quite it. well. Yes. So yep. you can have sort of a, a secondary sort of thing happening. I've actually used it in a bed where I don't know whether it was a good idea to plant them in the first place, but it wasn't my idea. So I, I, I let somebody get away with planting bluebells. Ah! Uh, yeah, and so we've got this we've got this Howard's End drift of bluebells that look really pretty for a couple of weeks in the spring, <laughs> and then their foliage is a menace to yeah, everything else yeah, around. And it flops all over the place. But I planted illumination under it. And it's and it actually survives. working. So yeah. the, the vinca is surviving the bluebells when they're up and about. And when the bluebells go down, I don't have bare ground. So it is sort of working. But, yes, bluebells are not one of those plants that I would recommend many people put in because they make such a mess when they're going down and they're they, really... And they, they smother other things yeah. with them. And, and you can't get them out foliage. once you've got them. Yes. No. And tell me, just 
uh, with the size of this bed, how many plants would I need, do you well, think? Well, it depends on how impatient you are. I mean, if you, if you are planting vincas, they grow reasonably quickly. So, you know, if you put them a metre apart, um, they, you know, within 12 months or so, they they'd should be sort of... starting to make a yeah, cover. Yeah, they'd start to be touching each other and move in. Um, I mean, you could plant them cheek by jowl if you wanted to. You're not going to do the plants any harm. Uh, you'll just do your wallet a lot more harm. <laughs> are they very expensive? No, 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 no they're not, not expensive all, no. plants. They're, they're quick and easy to propagate and grow. Uh, so you're not going to spend a fortune on them. It depends, of course, whether you buy them as tube-grown plants or whether you buy them as slightly bigger ones as to what you'll pay. Um, we, but we're we not sell, talking sheep stations. No, we sell medium-sized ones for eight fifty each. Oh, right. So it's right. And, and the same with the Pachysandras. You'd, Pachysandras, to get a really nice, quick coverage, you'd... You'd probably plant each one about 45, 60 centimetres mm. apart, right. two feet apart, and yeah. you'd soon have a nice coverage. Yeah. And you're not talking about a great big bed, so, yes, you're not going to break the bank, I don't think, trying to cover the bed. How much water? Well, anything you plant that's been nursery grown, make sure it's well watered when it first goes in. Yes. You know, so keep them well watered over the first summer um, uh, to keep them ticking along. But once they get their roots down, they're mm. only going to need a, a bit of a drink when it's exceedingly dry. And of right. course, if it's under a, uh, the eve, yes. you'll still have to keep an eye on it periodically because it's not going to get proper rain and things on it. Right. Uh, but you're not going to have to be out there no, watering every couple going, of days. Not or going to be a water guzzler. No. no. Thank you very much indeed. I appreciate all your information. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, we are running through until 9.15, so you've got about uh, 25 minutes to jump on the phones if you'd like to uh, to have a chat with us. That number, 94190155 to speak to Stephen or Merrill, or if you'd like to have a chat to Doug on the outside line, 94198. Three double seven, Stephen. What have you got coming up in the way of events? Anything interesting? Well, apart from the uh, the opera in the garden, um, uh, really, it's it's fairly quiet. I've got a few bus tours and things coming through the garden, and that's something I'm always happy to do if groups want to book to come through the garden. We can organise that for them. And so, over the next couple of months, I've got people from Bacchus Marsh. I've got people from. Well, actually, quite a few different places uh, around suburban Melbourne and so forth coming for for garden visits. So, um, yeah, so if people rang me at the nursery, if they've got a garden club or a group, um, we like to have sort of a minimum of 20 people to make it. People sort of forget. You don't just throw the gate open. You've got to you've got to tidy up and you've got to put things yes. away. And you know, there's, there's a little bit of a lead up to every opening. So you know, so we like to have you know a minimum of twenty people mm. uh, to come along. Uh, we can organise morning and afternoon teas in the garden if people want them as well. So you know, that sort of thing can be done. And there's lots of other areas of Mount Macedon that you can come and visit. So you know, you could make our make garden, a real day of yeah, it. Make mm. a part of the the scenario. The local Hort Society do lunches and things for people if they're looking for it and can organise tours as well um and so and there's you know a number of gardens up on mount Macedon that people can utilize certainly are yeah so it it can make a great day out so i know i've got i think three or four tours coming up in the next couple of months and always happy to have groups come so as long as they ring book and and let me know when they're coming and and uh, how many we're going to get and all that sort of stuff and i can give them costings on morning and afternoon teas and things if they want it mm. um and uh, in my garden certainly we sort of do a, a a personal tour with the group so i explain how and why i've done things uh 
can answer questions about what things are because everybody wanders around a garden. They'll see something in flower and they desperately want to know what it is. And uh, I don't label my garden because I don't like it to look like a budgie's graveyard. Um, and uh, also you have the issue of labels disappearing and all that sort of oh, stuff. Yes. And it's just impossible to appropriately label a garden, I reckon. Uh, so, But I know what everything is in the garden so I can answer people's questions and things. Make sure you bring a pencil and, and, and notepad because there's no point in asking what something is if you don't write it down because you won't remember. <laughs> I remember Particularly with the spelling. Yeah, well, especially with spelling. Uh, but I can remember Christopher Lloyd saying to people, I'm not telling you what it is unless you've got a notepad and pen to write it down because you won't remember. Uh, and that's quite true. He was quite right. You could tell somebody anything and two minutes later they'll have forgotten, forgotten it anyway. It. So, yeah, so do that and obviously bring um, something to take pictures of as, uh, of stuff as well. I found that actually quite useful because people will wander around yes. the garden. They'll take pictures of stuff and then they'll come over and see me and say, well, what's this or what's and, that? And write it on their yeah. phone. Yeah, and then yes. they've got yes. the full Yeah, yes, and, and that's that's a great way of sort of learning about plants, I think. So. It is. If I could put in a plug for the other side of Melbourne too, yeah. um, in West Gippsland, which is, you know, where our nursery and, and private garden is, we've actually got an organised group and we've got 12 private, they're all private country gardens, mm. big country gardens, right. and we act as a little group and uh, we welcome uh, groups, coach groups or mini coach groups or car groups um, throughout the year. And it's very inexpensive because we, we do it for charity and so the garden entry charges are very reasonable indeed. And our local charity fundraising committee provides catering so we can give people a lovely home-baked lunch, mm. either in our garden or we use if it's, you know, inclement weather. Mm, we which use, happens. Which happens. <laughs> we use our local community centre, which has full dining facilities and commercial kitchen, etc., where all the food is prepared. And uh, people do morning and afternoon teas in the garden. So for a very inexpensive amount of money, mm. we put the whole day together. All they have to do is contact Country Farm Perennials, we contact, we, well, first of all, we ask the group what they would like to do, what they're interested in and what time of the year are they coming because we choose the gardens according to what's going sure. to be good yeah. at that time. And we put the whole tour together for them. We supply them with... Uh, coach driver instructions, you know, go 300 metres and oh, turn right. right. Yes, yes. <laughs> so they have fully detailed coach driver instructions. They have maps. All of the garden owners are waiting at the gate to greet them. It's all timed out by yours truly. <laughs> <laughs> and you have some experience in I this. I do yes. have a tiny bit of experience <laughs> yeah. in arriving dead on time. Yeah, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, uh, it, it's a wonderful day out and, and visitors can see private gardens that they wouldn't have access to at any other time. But isn't that the charm of doing tours? I mean, oh, yes. I like being a lone traveller or just travelling yes, with my course, partner. It's great course. fun. Yeah, it's great uh, fun. But. Uh, uh, <laughs> but you don't get the opportunity to no. get in. And this is just as applicable to overseas travel as it is to local travel. Yes. Um, if you're going to get into places that are privately owned, the only way you can do so is if you get uh, linked if, up with a tour of some and sort. That's of right. And the tour leader or organiser yeah. has the contacts. Yeah, that's it's right. all and, about and contacts. Of, and yeah. that's, that's the charm of it. I mean, some people go, oh, I don't want to go on tours. And you think, well, you're never going to see these places no, unless never, you... No, that's never, right. Never, never. Yeah. And I, I love the, the congenial company of 
other enthusiasts, you know. Yeah. You, of course. You can be as enthusiastic as you like and someone won't think you're mad. Yeah, it's well, wonderful. Yeah, and that is the other thing too because if you're going on garden tours particularly, then you do tend to go with like-minded people. Exactly. Uh, and so, you know. You've you, got a starting point to yeah. talk about things. Yeah. But but going back to our, our you know, 12 gardens, um, we also – we've we've got the cooperation of all the other – um, venues in the area. So if people want to throw in a wine tasting, we organise that for them or they want to visit an artist studio or, you know, someone who makes garden sculpture, that's all part of the team effort mm. and it's all organised. So it's just a one-stop phone call Fantastic. or email. You just have to yep. con- contact Country Farm Perennials and we snap into action. Wow. We're That's a well-organised team. You certainly are. That sounds great. <laughs> and, it, and we raise money for the local hospital and the fire brigade and all that sort yeah. of thing. So, it's good. so people can feel good about having exactly. a great day out. Yeah. <laughs> e- you're eating all those scones for a really, for a really good, a good cause. cause. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Apart yeah. from your waistline. Something doesn't quite add up there, but anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, dear. All right, let's go to uh, Bronwyn in Drysdale. Good morning, Bronwyn. Good morning, everybody. I'm talking about your scones and jam and cream. It sounds gorgeous. Um, <laughs> look where we are at the moment in Little Dry Sale. At the moment, it's our peak time for our flowering gums. And at the mo- excuse my voice, it's a bit husky. Um, too much gardening. And we've got about three, oh, easy, 500 flowering gum trees out at the moment. So if anyone wants to do a little trip, um, Dry Sale's only about 20 minutes out from Geelong. Come straight down Geelong Road, take the Port Arlington Road. You'll go straight through our little town. And at the moment, there's about 20 different varieties of reds, about 20 of pinks. There's the orange, there's the white, and they are just beautiful. They've been planted over the last 100 years, so we've got varying sizes. But I think because of the heat... I'm not sure why, but this year's been one of our best years. Actually, oh, the flowering gums are great you. everywhere yes. this year. Oh, they we are were beautiful. at Smeaton Way yesterday and there was a roadside planting of them. They were a knockout. I've yeah. never seen mm. anything Actually, like Actually, I haven't them. been through the Bacchus Marsh for a little while, but they planted some of the grafted ones That's as, right. as an avenue yes. in Bacchus Marsh. That should be looking pretty good at the moment yes. too. That's lovely. Yes, I know I'm along the back road, um, Stephen. We used to live at Riddles Creek, so oh, came yes, up so and down those. Yes. Yeah. And when we actually saw them planting those ones, where you're going over the creek, there's about 50 of them. They're either side of the road. Yep, they're yes. the ready orange going ones. Going through Darley. That's it. Yeah. And um, and they're beautiful now. Well, they've grown now. That's the 10, 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. But down here, as I said, we've got trees that are 30 floors, 40 feet high. Isn't and they are just mass. And there's the orange one where it almost looks like there's an iridescent lamp behind it. Yes. So if anyone's coming down and you were talking about the food, we've got our wineries down here, the olive yes. groves and that. But yes, if anyone in the next four to six weeks or a couple of months actually they'll still be flowering. Mm-hmm. It's just well worth an hour and a half trip down from Melbourne mm-hmm. or if you're this side, it's less because they do look spectacular. And so, you can well, fight all the way about whether it's physifolia or ficifolia. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, it's not eucalyptus anymore. It's carimbia, but anyhow. <laughs> and don't forget your paper and pencil in. Yeah, that's yes, that's right. Yes, you better take your No, paper look, it doesn't matter what they're called. They are stunners mm. at the moment. It's just beautiful. And we've got Lake Lawn as you come in at the moment and we've had so much water the last 12 months, even though it's January, the lake is still full. So oh, as you come in, we've got the little blues train. There's a little railway station there, and you come in, and that's where it virtually starts. So plenty to do and see, and um, lots of gardens too. So Fantastic. thank you very well, much for your Bronwyn. program, and we're glad you're back. Oh, thanks, Bronwyn. <laughs> 
Okay. Bye. Bye. Yes, I was down in Lawn last week and the flowering gums down there yeah. were just – I've never seen them like it. Yeah, no, look, it, is a, it, is a, it is a spectacular year for them. They, they've oh. obviously really enjoyed the weather yes. uh, and they're flowering their little heads off and they do look stunning. Mm. And a lot of the new cultivars that are out there are just – Gorgeous. Oh, the colours yeah. are just a knockout. Mm. Although I think there, there's work needs to be done on the naming. There's one called Dwarf Orange. <laughs> Imaginative? <laughs> yeah, well, it says what's in the box, but, you know, I mean, really, Dwarf Orange? Yes. <laughs> Doesn't sound like much of a name to me. No. Uh, yeah, but no. it is a small growing orange flowered one, but, you know. Oh, well, okay. Descriptive. Yeah. Well, yeah, It is yes. descriptive, but, yes, it's not very romantic. No. <laughs> so there you go. Okay, we're going next to uh, Lois in Mitcham. Good morning, Lois. Oh, good morning, Pam. How are you? Um, we're well, thank you. Excellent, excellent. I'm ringing up because I've got a query on growing fruit trees from seed. Mm-hmm. Now, the main one I was thinking of was a um, plum, yeah. the um, Santa Rosa or the Satsuma, mm-hmm. because of the taste and the colour, really. Um, how difficult is it to take a seed from one of these plums and actually grow it? And what time would you take it after you've gotten the plum? How ripe should it be? All right. Well, plums are very easy to raise from seed, as you'll find if you have cherry plums around. They just come yes, up yes, everywhere. everywhere. Um, yes, we do. Yeah, we so do. you would collect the seed... And sow it straight away. Yes. Uh, so once you've eaten the plum, you'd sow the seed straight away into a pot or, or a polystyrene box or depending on how many seeds you're sowing. I have to say, though, you can't guarantee because no. they're seedling raised that the trees that you're going to raise are going to be identical to the parent. Yes. Uh, and also with many plums, you do need a cross-pollinator anyway, as you're probably aware. Yes. Uh, so you would need other cultivars of plums that are appropriate nearby for them to fruit. The other issue you have with seedling raised fruit trees is they generally take many more years to start flowering and fruiting. Oh, that should bud- keep me going, shouldn't it? Well, <laughs> yes. I was going to say it'll give you something to live for. Um, That's what I need. Yeah, so you know, so you do have to be patient. I remember a friend of mine raised a lemon tree from a pip. Oh, uh, my goodness. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, the lemon tree is no longer with us, but she raised a, a lemon tree from a, a, a pip and it actually started to germinate in the lemon. And yes, so she, yes, she got this pip. She, yeah, it does that sometimes. And lemon trees can actually be what they call apomictic. The, the, the seed is formed without having to be cross pollinated, so it's actually a clonal identical plant oh. to the parent. But it still took about 10 years to start fruiting. (laughs) But when it did, it produced perfectly good lemons, Mm. uh, but it it took a long time. So there's a long wait involved. Well, it is. Unfortunately, the tree eventually blew over in a gale, which was rather unfortunate. After all that time. Yeah, Yeah, so look, it can be done. But there's no guarantee of the, the quality or, in fact, the taste of the fruit because it may have cross-pollinated with something else. In fact, plums, because they need a cross-pollinator, would potentially yeah. be quite different to the parent plant. So you may not end up with anything quite like what you started with. And, and uh, you may end up with something that doesn't actually taste very nice at all. Oh, That's well, right. Mm. Yeah. Always put it into some jam, I guess. Well, yes, yes. <laughs> plums can always be used up, I guess, even if they're not great off the tree. That's um, good. But, um, yeah. yeah, so you may end up with something completely different than what you thought, uh, except that it will be a plum. Yes. Uh, but that's about all I can guarantee. And, and Stephen, what if you took a spur um, and um, t- 
tried planting that or otherwise trying to graft it. Yeah, well, you could certainly graft, um, but a lot of things like plums particularly are fairly hardy. There's no reason why you couldn't grow them from cuttings. No, well, that's right. And that would be a better technique because, one, you're going to get an identical plant to the parent, uh, and because you're taking adult wood, it will start fruiting far younger than yes. if you raised yes. it from seed. What, what sort of potting mix would one? Uh, would look, you could use a general potting mix and use uh, and do winter cuttings. I would I would attempt with a plum. Yes. Uh, so I'd do them as sort of pencil thickness, pencil length pieces. Yes. Uh, I'd po- probably put half a dozen or more into a six inch pot of good potting mix. And they do take root quite easily. Yeah. So yeah, yeah and look, you might not get 100%, have... but if you put half a dozen cuttings in, you're likely to get three or four. Um, and uh, they'll grow like mad. And uh, plums on their own roots are perfectly fine. I mean, a lot of things mm. you graft mm. onto plum understock because it has yes. a good strong root system. Mm. That's right, that's right. The other question that I do have, which is a, a fruit also, but it's raspberries. Now, raspberry canes, I know you usually grow like that but why couldn't you necessarily grow some canes yourself from the raspberry seeds well, again, you're not necessarily going to get the Gaining same raspberry. No. Yeah, and, and it's and it's a long term process. So, yes. and they're so easy to grow from the canes. Yeah, well, you know, that, you yeah, ask, you just you ask the question: yeah. Why would you do it when it's so easy to grow them? Yeah, from yeah. We have the had wild raspberries. I'm pretty sure that's what they were. Have come up in our garden. Oh, yeah. the birdies have been but, enjoying yeah. the raspberries. They, they've been there. I mean, we've been here over fifty years now, and they come up. Um, you know, most years the canes come up, and you see the raspberries coming on them. But, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Look, there's yeah. nothing wrong with them, but I wouldn't go specifically to raising raspberries from seed. No, no. Uh, I, I was just the thought that I easy. made some plum and raspberry jam yesterday. Oh, good. For you. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you very much. Now, remind me, you you know, you hear the story of Johnny Appleseed going across the oh, nation yes. and all yeah. of that. He'd be seen as an environmental vandal now. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Well, I mean, disaster uh, area. Yeah. Yeah. We throw out. Um, um, you know, peach and, and nectarine seeds. And I have got a couple of tr- uh, trees come up from yeah. them. That I've got a seedling nectarine are. in the garden that yes. fruits very well. Yes, um, lovely. And, uh, yes, yeah, so, you know, I don't dismiss um, seedling raised trees. I mean, a lot of people say, oh, you wouldn't bother. But, um, you know, the, the world must have come about by people doing that. Yeah. I mean, well, oh, yes. Or how did Granny Smith it. apple evolve if it wasn't for the fact that Granny Smith had a seedling apple come up in her garden that she thought was really good? Yes. So, well, you know, so you could have one named after you too, but you don't have to call it Granny anything unless you really want to. <laughs> no, I'm a man anyway. Yeah, oh, you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's fair enough. Okay. Well, thank you all anyway. That was lovely. No, I just... You know, thinking, thinking, thinking. And Good. It keeps you in. young doing that. <laughs> oh, I'll try. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank bye. you. Bye. And uh, we're going to Sonia in Mitcham. No, in Broadmeadows. Good morning, Sonia. Good morning. Good morning. Um, shall I go ahead? Yes, yes please do. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, first of all, I want to thank you very much. Uh, a few weeks ago, I rang with a problem of my tomato plants always getting yellow leaves mm-hmm. uh, and that I'd finally put it in a pot and your advice that it was possibly a soil deficient was spot on. Oh, good. I, I, I had them in pots. I didn't realise a potting mixture deteriorated. Mm. As soon as I put on a bit of uh, complete fertiliser, 
the yellow leaf just started to turn green. Well, oh, there you go. had something so, to eat. Yes, yes it's yes, nice so, to have I, a simple so solution. So therefore, uh, next time I'll grow them in the garden and I'll uh, instead of pots. And um, so I really do thank you for that advice. It's, it's um, good to grow tomatoes in pots, though, because the warmer environment for the roots in a, a pot, it, it warms up more quickly than the soil, and so you can get early tomatoes very well, much more easily mm. out of pot-grown tomatoes, but you do have to pour on the feed because mm, yeah. they're yeah, Most potting mixes aren't all that high in nutrients anyway, are they? No, really? no. not at all. No. Uh, so if you don't sort of keep feeding things in a, in a pot, and particularly something vigorous like, um, well, most fruit and vegetables, really. Yes. Uh, they're vigorous plants, and if you want good succulent fruit or good succulent vegetables, they need, they need feeding. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, so you've got to do that. Mm-hmm. Yes, now that's good, except, of course, in pots, it's water. <laughs> yes, you've got oh, to yes. keep on top yes. of that as well. <laughs> and, and you forget, uh, you know, they're very hungry. Anyway, I put them in too small a pot. Next time, I'll take your advice. In fact, I always take your advice. <laughs> and the one, other one that is confounding me is that I've got a passion fruit. Mm-hmm. I planted two on the basis that one would die, and they both live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that happens. Yeah, yeah. so they're so probably... Um, and last year, I got prolific uh, um, passion fruit, which, to my surprise. Yeah. Uh, now I don't have. I've got leaves, you know, beautiful green leaves, abundant, mm. and I've got two passion fruits smiling at me, <laughs> and um, and I got three today. I, I have hardly any, mm. and I just. I also had the graft grew. Um, and I, I couldn't find the connection to the main stem. But anyway, I removed all them, and they had flowers. But my passion fruit, no flowers, no very few fruit. What do I now do? Well, I would feed your passion fruit uh, yes. with a high potash fertiliser, so something that's got a reasonably high uh, potash uh, component because yes. you don't if they're lush and green you don't need to give them a lot of nitrogen but you probably need to get some potash into the ground uh, but it could well be that they were actually growing far too vigorously um, to settle and, down and flower well and perhaps the the growth from the rootstock that uh, got away took a lot of the power out of the the grafted top ah. story this yeah. year and uh, weakened that. So that could be a solution as well. So, yeah. And look, with passion fruits, you have good and bad years too. Yeah, they, That's they are true. a bit They're plants that do that. Yes, yes they're, they're they not do. something that are reliable year in, year out. It's a bit you, like yeah. some pears and apples that are really an every second year Every yeah. second year event. is a, yes, yeah. that's yeah. And right. certainly if a, if a fruiting plant does have a really heavy crop one year, It'll you can almost up. always bank on it having less of such, uh, lesser crop the following year anyway. Yes, yeah. I see. Yeah, yeah, they just can't sustain that sort of heavy cropping year after year after year. So really it's not much good putting potash now. It's not going to produce flowers now, is it? Oh, no. It's, no, well, but it won't hurt to put it down. Strengthen it up for next yeah, year. Because uh, yeah. potash takes time to work into the plant anyway, so it won't hurt to put some potash down. But, yes, it's not going to suddenly come into flower. Okay. Mm. All right. I was just wondering because next door to it's a fajoa, and I've got nothing. I've always had some fajoa. Yes. I was wondering whether it was the bees, but... Uh, the, the passion fruit climbed into the fajoa and I had to free it. Um, yeah. yeah. Of course, something has to flower first for the bees to have any impact. So it's really about whether the plant flowered yeah. first. Yeah. If, if the fijoa didn't have a particularly good crop of flowers on it this year, then quite obviously it's not going to have a good crop of fruit either. And, and because we had some pretty weird weather for a while there, 
um, before Christmas, we had some very cold weather mm. and yes. wet weather, yes. and it was grey and overcast for a lot of days in a row, unusually so. And we certainly found in our vegetable and fruit crops that there was a period there where the bees were not very efficient. Mm. They weren't flying a lot and, you know, they weren't very busy. It just wasn't weather for them. And so some things missed out getting pollinated. Ah, yes, yes. Well, that's actually, I was, yep. Okay, that all gels. So I put some potash out now. Yeah, it won't uh, hurt. Hmm? It won't hurt. Yes, and it'll be for for the coming year. And oh one, yes. One last one. I've got a very vigorous growing rhubarb, and I didn't realise that they went to seed. Yes, oh, rhubarb. Yes. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they do. send up flower <laughs> stems and go to seed. Yes, and it's a good idea to chop those off. <laughs> yeah, well, I did. Hmm. Now I've got far more rhubarb than I need. Um, personally, um, should should I be dividing those clumps? Or well, you'll end yes. up with even more rhubarb, <laughs> and no. you can hand them on hand them on to friends. Yes, they're a, a good rhubarb because you know you get some really good ones and some mongrels as well. So a really good rhubarb plant is a thing to be treasured and divided and handed on to friends. Ah. But it does freshen them up if you divide yeah. them. So it's a good idea to do it every few years. You don't need to do it every year by any means. Right. Okay, so it wouldn't naturally do it itself, let one bulb die off and another vigorous... No, because no. they, they just become more congested clumps. Yes. Yes. So eventually you need to break them up and, and bring them back to sort of one or two crowns. Right. Uh, and sort of that invigorates the plant, makes it young again, basically. You sort of, you know, take right. it back. And you get better yeah. stems. Mm. Yes, and, and your, your, your remark then about... Good and bad rhubarb. What do you base that on? What 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 do you judge well, that a, on? Well, a, a lot of um, rhubarb plants are grown from seed, and uh, you get some that are. There's lots of different breeds of rhubarb. Some that have really good red colouring, some that don't have much red colouring. Yeah. You get some with excellent sweeter flavour, and some with very sour flavour. So, ah. when you get a really good one, it is a thing to be treasured and divided up and handed mm. on to friends or other parts of the garden. And you won't turn a green-stemmed rhubarb into, into a red one. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> ah, they yes. is what they is. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Oh, well, you've given me uh, a lot of advice there, and I uh, thank you very much. Okay. And, again, I can't uh, believe I had a three-year problem with my tomatoes, and you solved it in one morning. <laughs> oh, well, that's great. <laughs> thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Now, we've got a couple of messages. Um, Narell has rung in on the outside line to say that the begonia display has gone into the Fitzroy Garden Conservatory. Ah, yes. yes. Now, um, I don't know anything about that. I can only suggest if um, maybe if someone from the Begonia Society would like to... Uh, well, I think it's just their annual display. They put it, They change the displays in the conservatory at Fitzroy Gardens regularly. So oh, it's, right. it's not the Begonia Society doing it's it. It's not it's, the Begonia no, Society. No, no, it's, it's, it's actually the council or whoever runs that particular yeah. garden has put their begonias in And so place. it's now ready for viewing. Yes, so yes. that's what I that's, assume they're talking about. And I yes, have to say, I haven't sense. been into that conservatory for ages and it's, and they always put on a wonderful display yes, in super. there. You know, so it's definitely worth a little trip in and, you know, it's free entry. You just wander in and have a look at the flowers of whatever's in season that they've got in there at the moment. Yep. And so if their begonias have gone into place, it would be well worth having a look at. Yep. Now, I've also had a message that uh, Druin has a Physifolia festival Starting February the 4th, it's which great, is today. Yeah, it's a great festival. The, the streets of Druin are lined with Physifolia trees. And as we've already said, they're having a bumper year this year. But 
associated with the festival are all sorts of art displays and, you know, craft events mm. and all sorts of things happening in the are they town. making things out of gum nuts? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I had this vision of um, you know, May and... Gibbs things going on down <laughs> no, there. With, no, no, know, no, no. Lots no. of gumnut babies or something. <laughs> no, no, no. Very quickly, Stephen, we did have someone while we were oh, away um, yes. just saying that they'd had limbs dropping off um, eucalyptus trees. Yeah. Look, it's, it's, it's a fact, you know, eucalypts do shed limbs on mm. a fairly regular basis. They and, do. Uh, and it's not all species of eucalypts, it's certainly, a, but a range of them do. And it's got nothing to do with the eucalypts being blown around by a storm or anything. It can be the calmest, quietest day and the air temperatures are sort of moderate. There doesn't seem to be anything sort of specifically weird about the day and suddenly a limb will fall out. Mm. And it's just part of the beast with some eucalypt species. Uh, which would tend to suggest that some of them are not probably good things to plant in car parks or to have close mm. to buildings or or what have you. But that shouldn't frighten us off having eucalypts. I mean, we've just been talking about physifolias, for goodness sake, which, of course, are now no longer exactly eucalypts, but we still see them as gum trees. And they don't tend to shed. They, no. they seem no, to be a very don't. good, strong, solid little tree. Yep. Uh, so it's a matter of selecting the right varieties. I think the same can be said of a lot of the multi-stem mallies and things. They tend to be fairly safe. Yes. And, of course, in a smallish garden, it's probably not the best idea to be planting seriously large timber eucalypts anyway. Mm. And they're the ones that you tend to have more of the problem with. So and the and you know, people often call them widow makers. And, mm. it, and it was true in the early well, yes. days of Australia's settlement. That's right. Yeah, would camp underneath the, the gum trees and bang, down yeah. would come a yep. big limb. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, so it is something to be aware of. I mean, it was a politician who once said, wasn't it something to do with, you know, sort of uh, be alert but not alarmed? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, so you do have to take into consideration the Thoughtful big trees. where can, you plant. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, so if you're planting new trees, you know, do a little research, work out which ones are going to be appropriate for the size of the place you're working in uh, and and select appropriately. Mm. That's the main thing to take yep. out of that. Mm. Okay. We have run out of time for our first week back, um, but, of course, we will be back again next uh, Sunday morning, 7.30, running through until 9.15. Um, yes, save up your questions uh, for yeah. us and, uh, as I say, we'll be back. And uh, in the meantime... If you are interested in uh, in seeing private gardens, country farm perennials, yes. and that will bring up all the details. Okay, a big thank you to the panel. A huge thank you to Liz and Doug who've been handling all the phones. Uh, until next week, bye for now.